have a Bible, please open to the first chapter of John. We're working our way now through the Gospel of John and um, come to verses 15 to 18 of chapter 1. There should be an outline inside your bulletin and there are printed messages at both exits. You can grab those and follow along uh, with more detailed notes and many other verses that I can't um, refer to here for sake of time. And those messages are online and um, in printed and audio form, and so you can access them there. John writes, um, John testified, John the Baptist, about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Suppose that you uh, get an opportunity to share Christ with maybe a family member or a friend, and uh, that person says to you, you know, I'm relatively happy as I am, and to be perfectly honest with you, I just don't need something else to do, especially on Sunday mornings. I kind of enjoy the laid-back time at home, and so why should I think about believing in Jesus and then having to go to church and all of that? What would you say? Well, there are a lot of different things, of course, that could be said, and uh, it would seem that anyone who gave you that kind of an answer has no conception of his precarious standing before the judge of the universe. I mean, here is a person who is literally one breath away from eternal condemnation before a holy God, And he sees no need to be reconciled with God. He certainly has no idea of the magnitude of his own sin or of how holy and absolutely righteous and just God is. And so you may need to start there and begin to explore some of those issues before you could um, deal with or take him to some of the uh, truths from our text But at some point, as I've mentioned in the earlier messages on John, and I've mentioned it many other times before, you've got to come to grips, and that person has to come to grips, with the fundamental question, who do you say that Jesus is? That is really the question of all questions. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then... As we sang, come hardship, come trial, come whatever, we have to follow Jesus because he is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, as he said himself. If Jesus is not, his claims are not right, not true, if he's not risen from the dead, then, as Paul puts it, go eat, drink, be merry, have a great life because you're wasting your time to be a Christian. Why suffer if Jesus is not the truth? And so... Everything hinges on 
the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ. If Christ is who John and Peter and all the other apostles, including Paul, proclaimed him to be, everything follows. And in our text, John um, builds on the truths that we saw last week in verse 14. Really, verses 14 to 18 are kind of a a unit, but I couldn't cover it all in one. Um, And he gives us four more reasons why we should believe in Jesus. He says that you should believe in Jesus in the first place because he's greater than all of the prophets. That's verse 15. Uh, You should believe in Jesus, secondly, because he provides abundant grace. That's verse 16. Uh, You should believe in Jesus because he's greater than Moses and the prophets. That's verse 17. And then, finally, you should believe in Jesus because he is God's ultimate revelation to us. That's in verse 18. Now, to go back in verse 14, John says... And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in our text, he continues then to unfold for us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal word. Someday, the scripture says, when we actually see Jesus face to face, we will be instantly transformed to be like him. What a glorious day that will be. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 2 puts it this way. Beloved, we are now children of God, wonderful truth, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, uh, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So seeing Jesus in his glory is going to transform us. Paul says a similar thing in in 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from glory to glory into his image. And so our text has practical value, not only for those who need to come to believe in Jesus, it certainly applies there, but also for all of us who are believers in him but are in the process of gradually, incrementally uh, being transformed into his image because the more we see the glory of Christ now, the more we will be like him and we all want that. Now, as I said last week, the background, I think, for our text, the verses that John has in mind as he writes these verses along with verse 14 was that glorious encounter that Moses had with God in Exodus 33 and 34. It's one of the most profound uh, encounters with God in all of Scripture. And uh, Moses, first of all, tells God, you've got to go with us. If you don't go with us, they're out in the wilderness. If you don't go with us into the promised land, I'm done. I can't do it. And so God promises to go with Moses. And then Moses is encouraged or Um, takes courage to get bold. Have you ever asked God for something really bold? You know, well, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And I don't know if he knew what he was asking. 
Because every time in the Bible someone sees the glory of God, it's not a favorable experience. You know, they are smitten. They're just kind of like, whoa. You know, it it knocks them out. But he asked that. Uh, Verse 18 of chapter 33, I pray you show me your glory. And then here's God's response, verse 19. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name. And remember, the name stands for the entire person, all of his attributes. I will proclaim the name of Yahweh, of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. And you might recognize that last Part of that verse, if you were here in our study of Romans, because Paul quotes that in Romans 9 to uh, support the doctrine of God's sovereignty, his uh, eternal election. But then God explains something to Moses. He said, Moses, you need to understand, you cannot see my face and live. Because if you saw my glory, my face, it would consume you. And so God tells Moses an interesting thing. He says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand. I'll pass by and I'll take my hand off and you'll get a glimpse of my back, but you can't see my face. Really intriguing anthropomorphic kind of description there. And so that happens. Moses goes back up on Mount Sinai. And then the Lord descends in the cloud And we read this uh, in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And I hope you ponder these verses often. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, meaning, I think, the unrepentant uh, person, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So here Moses says, God, show me your glory. And what does God show him? His goodness, his grace, His compassion for sinners, and yet at the same time, His truth, that He is a God who judges sin. Now, in our text, John wants us to see that in Jesus Christ, God's abundant grace and goodness and truth are seen far more clearly than Moses saw them there on the mountain. And uh, he wants us to see that Jesus is God's ultimate revelation of himself to us so that in seeing his glory, we might be transformed into his image. So first of all, in verse 15, he tells us that you should believe in Jesus because as God, as the eternal God, he is greater than all the prophets. Verse 15 again, John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now, verse 16 would seem, as I'll explain in a moment, to um, refer back to verse 14 and to explain it. 
And uh, so verse 15 may be what uh, D.A. Carson calls a planned parenthetical remark. Um, Also, if the prologue, as I explained in one of our earlier messages, is structured as a chiasm, you know, that goes like this, where the verse 1 relates to verse 18, and then it works its way down until there's a crux verse, and the crux we saw was verses uh, 12 and 13. Then um, verse 15 relates back up to verses 6 and 8, where he mentioned the witness of John. Also, verse 15 prepares us for what we're going to encounter next time in verses 19 to 34, and that is John's witness to Jesus that immediately follows. But what does John mean when he brings up this statement? Uh, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. That last part could be translated, he who comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me or because he was first with respect to me. That's a literal translation of it. Uh, He has higher rank because he was first with respect to me. Now, you need to understand, John was six months older than Jesus. And he began his ministry before Jesus. And I think by the first part of that statement, when he says... uh, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. What John is doing is dispelling a common cultural notion, and that is that the older man had honor over the younger man. And John is saying, in this case, it's not so. Jesus is the younger man, but he has higher honor than I. Uh, But then there's that last phrase, because he was first with respect to me, which is translated here, Uh, He existed before me. It's kind of a difficult phrase for this reason. Um, It is doubtful that at this point, John the Baptist understood the pre-existence and the eternality of Jesus. I say that because even the disciples, it took them until after the crucifixion to really lock in on and, and understand clearly Jesus is eternal God. And so, did John really understand that here at the very outset of Jesus' ministry? Um, Colin Cruz explains it this way. He, He says, The evangelist, that is John the Apostle writing this, may have introduced a note of ambiguity in the way he has reported John the Baptist's words so that his readers will recognize that John spoke better than he knew. And in the gospel, several times, John has different ones speak better than they know. Uh, You remember Caiaphas in chapter 11 says, well, one man has to die for the nation. He doesn't know what he's saying, Um, but he's saying something profoundly true. And then Pilate, you know, says, this is the king of the Jews. Well, he doesn't know that, but he says it, and it's true. So maybe here the ambiguous wording is so that we who are reading it, who know verse 1, that Jesus is eternal God, He is the eternal Word, we can say John spoke better than he knew. He said, you know, that he is um, first ahead of me, always greater than I, but actually um, John the, the Apostle said he was speaking truth. Jesus existed before him. 
So the Apostle John, writing this, wants us to know Jesus is greater than any of the prophets. He's greater than John the Baptist. And you'll remember that Jesus said, among men there's no one greater than John. John is the greatest. I mean, he is the apex of all of the apostles, I mean all of the prophets. And so if John is the greatest and John himself says, no, no, there's one greater, there's one much greater, and that is Jesus, then the point here is we should believe in Jesus because he is greater than the sum of all the prophets put together. Then the second point that John makes is that you should believe in Jesus because he provides abundant grace for all who believe in him. And here we're looking at verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Now, as I said, verse 16 seems to be explaining verse 14. The word for seems to go back, I think, to the mention there that Jesus in verse 14 is full of grace. And then you'll see that verse 17 begins with four also. And in my understanding, it goes back to verse 14 and explains that Jesus is full of truth because he's greater than the law and Moses who gave the truth of the law. And so Paul is making, I mean, John is making the point here that Jesus Full of truth, I mean, full of grace, um, is the one we have received, and as he puts it, grace upon grace. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 9 said, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is clearly a statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. And so the point is, there is then infinite fullness of God in Jesus, and when we receive Christ by believing in him, as we saw in verse 12, we become children of God, and children are heirs of the Father, aren't they? And so as children of God, we receive the inheritance of all the riches of Christ in glory, and it will take throughout all eternity for us to discover what those are as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. Uh, J.C. Ryle explains John here, and I love Ryle, as I mentioned, if you can get his expository thoughts on the Gospels or read it online, you'll be ahead. Here's what Ryle said. All we who believe in Jesus have received an abundant supply of all that our souls need out of the full store that resides in him for his people. It is from Christ and Christ alone that all our spiritual wants have been supplied. It is from Christ and Christ alone that all of our spiritual wants have been supplied. Now, I hate to burden such a wonderful verse by veering off into an interpretive discussion, but I have to, okay? Because there is a difficult phrase to interpret in verse 16, and commentators write pages on this. The phrase, grace upon grace. What does John mean by that phrase? Um, the, the phrase, I mean, the word that is translated upon in our English text, most of our translations have that, is a little Greek preposition, anti. 
An anti in Greek usually means one thing is replaced by another. Okay? Uh, one thing is put in the place of another. And uh, so in light of verse 17, where he mentions the law given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ, a number of very reputable commentators argue that the phrase means that the grace of the law was replaced by the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, that interpretation actually goes all the way back to some early church fathers, including Chrysostom. Uh, but they contend that if John had meant grace on top of grace, he would have used another Greek preposition, epi, that means on. So by anti, they're saying that the grace that was in the law is set aside and now replaced by the grace in Christ. And perhaps in light of God's revelation to Moses of his grace that I mentioned in Exodus 33 and 34, I'll concede that may be what John intends, but here's my problem with that interpretation. It seems to me to be awfully subtle, number one. I don't think the average reader would get it. And uh, number two... The law itself was not noted for dispensing grace, uh, but rather condemnation. And so uh, it just seems to me to be a strained interpretation if that's all that John meant. Well, I'm going to burden you with some technicality still. If you go to the Bauer Art Gingrich Greek-English lexicon, okay, which is kind of the, the granddaddy of lexicons, it actually mentions John 1.16, and it says that anti here means grace pours forth in ever new streams. A.T. Robertson has a similar interpretation in his uh, uh, big thick grammar of the uh, Greek New Testament. And then another scholar, Murray J. Harris, has an extended um, essay on the prepositions in the Greek New Testament in the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. And he says that anti in this verse denotes a perpetual and rapid succession of blessings as though there were no interval between the arrival of one blessing and the receipt of the, of the next. And so it seems to me that when you add in the idea that we have received of Jesus fullness and then grace upon grace, that at the very least, John wants us to understand that we have this inexhaustible supply of grace that we get when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how John Calvin applies verse 16, three ways. He says, first of all, it shows us that while we're all spiritually destitute, the abundance that exists in Christ, he says, is intended to supply our deficiency, to relieve our poverty, to satisfy our hunger and thirst. Second, Calvin says this, and he's absolutely right. If we depart from Christ, he says, it is vain for us to seek a single drop of happiness elsewhere. He says the world just isn't going to supply what we get in Christ. It may temporarily meet your needs, but in light of eternity, you'll be lacking. And then third, Calvin says, we have no reason to fear lacking anything if we draw on Christ's fullness because... As he puts it, Christ is a truly inexhaustible fountain. 
And he goes on and he points out that John includes himself here. He says, we have all received so that uh, we know that no one is accepted. All who believe in Christ have received grace upon grace upon grace, like the ocean waves that just keeps coming to meet our need. Now, having said that, that's very easy to say. It's not so easy to apply, is it? See, it's very easy to say, well, Christ is all we need. He is our supply of grace. And that's absolutely true. But do you experience that? In my experience, Christians are very quick when a problem hits to turn to things other than Christ. We turn to worldly techniques. We run to a counselor who tells us the latest psychological technique on how to cope. Uh, Sometimes Christians turn to tranquilizers. I've seen Christians turn to alcohol to calm their nerves. I just need to relax, and it relaxes me, that kind of thing. I'm not saying that it's wrong, of course, to take prescription medication for needs, but I am saying, are we really, really laying hold of Christ first? To understand what that means. That our problems drive us to dependence on Him, where we cry out to Him and say, God, if, if you're not my sufficiency, I'm, I'm a hurting person here. I need more of Jesus. Here's how Jesus said we should cope with anxiety in a troubled world. John 16:33. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. And then he very frankly admits, in the world you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Do you know that when you're anxious? To lay hold of Jesus as your peace and say, Oh Lord, help. I'm really nervous. I'm really fearful. I'm so anxious about this God. Paul said the same thing. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything by prayer and supplication, Don't forget the next two words, with thanksgiving. (laughs) Thank you, Lord, for this trial that drove me to you. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, you know, I tried that, but the problems didn't go away. You know what? It's good to know Paul tried that and his problems didn't go away. Did you know that? He says in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I cried out to God, God, take this this thorn. We don't know what that was, a physical ailment or maybe some speculate it was the Judaizers who were trailing him and upsetting all his work. But he, he says, take this thorn away from me. And he gets that great answer from the Lord there, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My Here's the word, grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Do you know the all-sufficient grace of Jesus in your life? My grace is sufficient for you. And, you know, I don't have time to go there, but in Hebrews 4, 
what throne do we go to when we have need? The throne of grace. And so I think that's what John is telling us here, that the key to peace is not an absence of problems, but the presence of the Lord and knowing His abundant grace that we can draw near as sinners at any time and say, Father, I'm weak, I'm anxious, I'm troubled. Oh, Lord, I need Your grace. And then Jesus is so much sweeter to you after that experience. Have you had that experience? After you've drank deeply of His grace and later you just go, wow, uh, that was a wonderful trial because I know the grace of Jesus deeper now than I did before. Well, thirdly, John says you should believe in Jesus because he's greater than Moses and the law. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And again, in reading John 1, you have to ask the question, why does John introduce the law and Moses here? And I think maybe for one thing, if Exodus 34 is in the background of his mind, in Exodus 34, Exodus 32 Moses comes off the mountain and he finds the people worshiping the golden calf. And in anger, he takes the two tablets of stone, breaks them, judges the people, and then God calls him back up to the mountain. And on the way, God says, "Uh, get two more tablets. I'm going to write those again, those Ten Commandments. And so there was a reissuing of the law as he goes back up on the uh, mountain and shows Moses his glory. And also, if um, Exodus 33 and 34 is um, behind our text, and the law that was given there in the Ten Commandments manifested God's grace, His loving kindness, and His truth, as we saw in Exodus 34, 6, if that's the backdrop, then John is probably showing this as great as the law and Moses were, and it was a great blessing to Israel, someone greater is here. Jesus Christ, who embodies God's grace and God's truth. And as we saw in verse 14, he's tabernacled among us. He's, take, he's pitched his tent here among us, and now we see his, God's glory in him. Andreas Kostenberger points out, he says, Rather than offend the gospel's Jewish audience, this verse is designed to draw it in. If you want even more, an even more gracious demonstration of God's covenant love and faithfulness, the evangelist tells his readers, it is found in Jesus Christ. And so John is saying if, to the Jews, if you thought that gift of God's law was good through Moses, you, you ain't tasted anything yet. Jesus is even better. Uh, he is a greater gift. And yet at the same time, again, I have to differ somewhat with the commentators here in that it seems to me John is drawing a contrast between the law and uh, the grace, uh, the superiority that we have in Jesus Christ. And Leon Morris points out, he says, the contrast between the Christian way with the Jewish and the function of Moses as subordinate to and pointing forward to the Christ is a recurring theme in this gospel. And again, to cite J.C. Ryle, I love Ryle, he puts it this way, By Moses was given the law, the moral law full of high and holy demands and of stern threatenings against disobedience, the ceremonial law full of burdensome sacrifices, ordinances, and ceremonies, which never healed the worshiper's conscience, 
and at best were only a shadow of good things to come. By Christ, on the other hand, came grace and truth. Grace by the full manifestation of God's plan of salvation and the offer of complete pardon to every soul that believes on Jesus. And truth by the unveiled exhibition of Christ himself as the true sacrifice, the true priest, and the true atonement for sin. And then Ryle cites Augustine on this verse who says, The law threatened, not helped. Commanded, not healed. Showed, not took away our feebleness. But it made ready for the physician who was to come with grace and truth. Also, it might be interesting for you to notice that verse 17 is the first time in the gospel here that John uses the name Jesus, his human name, and also his designation as Christ, the Messiah. Um, The reason that's interesting is John will use the name Jesus 237 times in his gospel. It's far more than any of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, more than all of them put together. And he uses that name one-fourth of all of the Uh, 900 and uh, some odd uses of it in the New Testament. And uh, then he also uses Christ more than any other gospel. But here's an interesting thing. He only uses Jesus Christ as here one other time. That's in chapter 17 and verse 3. So he uses Jesus a lot. He uses Christ a lot, but Jesus Christ together... Uh, Only here and in chapter 17, verse 3, but then in chapter uh, 20 and verse 31, in his purpose, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and so on. But John is making it clear here that the word that we saw in verse 1, the word who was in the beginning with God, the word who was God, The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14, is none other than Jesus, the human born of Mary, who is the Messiah of Israel. He is God in human flesh. Now, as I pointed out last week, grace and truth meet their apex at the cross. When you look at the cross... There is never a greater demonstration of God's grace because any sinner can come to the cross, no matter how great your sin, and find forgiveness as a free gift. Not as a a penance you have to earn. It's a free gift. Where is there greater grace? Nowhere. Also, at the cross, you see God's truth manifested for this reason. God is just and holy. And he can't just say, nah, I forgive you. The penalty must be paid. And God's truth is so great that he was willing to lay our sin on his sinless, eternal son to bear that horrific penalty on the cross. And so it is just a marvel, the grace of of our Lord and the truth of our Lord there seen at the cross. So John says, first of all, verse 15, showing us the glory of Christ. Believe in Jesus because he's greater than all the prophets. Secondly, believe in Jesus, John says, because uh, 
he provides abundant grace to everyone who believes in him, verse 16. Thirdly, believe in Jesus because he supersedes the law and Moses. He is the embodiment of grace and truth. And then finally, verse 18, you should believe in Jesus because he is God's ultimate revelation of himself to us. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, at first glance, when you're reading through the prologue of John, verse 18 seems to come out of nowhere. You think, why all of a sudden does John bring up no one has seen God in any time? He hasn't been talking about that, has he? Well, I think there are at least two reasons he brings it up. First of all, as I explained, if Exodus 33 and 34 is the backdrop for this section... What did Moses ask for in Exodus 33? Show me, God, your glory. I want to see you. And God explains that that can't happen or you'll get burned up. But uh, here we see God in Jesus. And then secondly, verse 18, as I said, wraps up the chiasm of verses 1 through 18. And what we have in verse 1 is we cannot know the eternal God except through the Word. Just as you cannot know my thoughts unless I verbalize them, God has verbalized Himself in Jesus. And so we can see the unseen God when we see Jesus Christ. And so um, what he is saying is that Jesus, the, the Word, the only Son of God, Jesus who was with God, verse 1, is the same who, in verse 18, is in the bosom of the Father, and he has explained God to us. Now, you may be, if you know your Bible, wondering about a couple of things. First of all, uh, in Exodus 24, in verse 10, it says that the leaders of Israel went up on the mountain with Moses and Joshua, and they saw God. They saw the God of Israel. But then in chapter 33, God says, no one can see me and live. Or John here says, no one has seen God at any time. Or you'll remember Isaiah says, the year that King Uzziah died, my eyes saw the Lord on his throne high and lifted up. But Paul says, too, no man has seen God or can see God. John says here, no man can see God. So what's the answer? Well, it seems to me the answer is this. No one has or can see the very essence of God in his unmitigated glory. That would consume us, just like you can't travel to the sun. If they put an astronaut on the sun, he's a dead astronaut. You, you just can't go there. And so you, you cannot see God in the fullness of his splendor. I think when Isaiah saw the Lord, he saw Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 41. He saw Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. Um, almost always when people in the Old Testament get this limited vision of God, as I said, they are absolutely terror-struck. Isaiah goes, oh, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. I'm, I'm finished. But now John is saying this good news. God has revealed himself in Jesus, full of grace and truth to us. And we can draw near to the living God through him. 
Now, some of you have a translation. Again, I've got to deal with an interpretive matter here. That says, the only begotten Son has declared Him or explained Him uh, instead of the only begotten God. It's based on a textual variant, and uh, without going into a lot of detail, the earliest and best manuscripts favor the reading, the only begotten God. Uh, Also, one of the rules of textual criticism is trying to figure out which reading most likely explains the other. Most likely, the only begotten God, which is a unique phrase, a scribe was writing that and thought, wait a minute, the only begotten God... uh, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, as we find in John 3.16, John 3.18, and so on, and even in John 1.14. And so he probably changed the reading to the only begotten Son. And as I said, that has inferior manuscript evidence. Uh, So probably the original reading, if you translate it literally, read the unique Son... God, in apposition to the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so it's a statement of the deity of Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 46 of John, Jesus will say, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So Jesus has done what no human can do, seen the Father. And then in chapter 14, verse 9, he tells Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So again, verse 18 is tying back into verse 1. The Word was God in verse 1. Jesus is God in verse 18. Uh, And yet, the Word was with God in verse 1, so he distinguishes the Word from the Father in verse 18. uh, Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, referring to his close relationship to the Father. Um, And so, uh, verse 18 also, by the way, the closeness of relation that Jesus eternally had with God explains that cry of dereliction on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's one of the great mysteries of the of history, how could God the Father forsake God the Son at that moment that He bore our sin? The first and only time in history the fellowship between them was was broken. And I think that was the horror of the cross for Jesus. The word explained in verse 18 is a Greek word that um, if you transliterate it into English, we get our word exegete. When you exegete the Scriptures, you figure out what it means and interpret it and explain it to others. And it's parallel to the Word in verse 1. As I said, the Word explains a thought. Jesus explains the unseen God to us. In 1 John 2.23, John writes this, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Or in John 5.24, Jesus says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. And so the point is, the only way that we can know God the Father is through Jesus, God the Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who has explained Him to us. And what that means is this. 
the cults can never know the, the living and true God because they deny the Son. They deny His deity. It also means this. The insider movement, which is very popular right now, many American evangelicals are promoting it among Muslim missions, and they change the terms father and son in the translation of the Gospels to something else that's less offensive to Muslims. They are changing the very nature of who God is and the very core of the Gospel, trying to make the Gospel more explainable to Muslims, and it garbles the whole thing up. Um, it's fine to explain what the terms mean, to say it doesn't mean what you think it means. It means this, but we're not free to change the terms. The Father and the Son is essential to understanding the very nature of God who chose to reveal himself to us as the eternal Father, the eternal Son, and the eternal Spirit. And so we can't change that. Now, let me just wrap it up by saying this. John didn't write all this to satisfy our curiosity or to stimulate some sort of a intellectual discussion. As I pointed out in the opening message, John writes all he writes so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that knowing that you will believe in him and have eternal life through his name. And so why should you believe in Jesus? John is saying, believe in Jesus because he's greater than the prophets. Believe in Jesus because he is the source of infinite supplies of grace that we all need. Believe in him because he's greater than Moses and the prophets, I mean, and the law. And believe in him because he is God's ultimate revelation of himself to us. And so if you turn away from Jesus you're rejecting the very witness that God has given concerning his son. But if you believe in Jesus, then you can conclude, as John says in 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. See, he has exegeted God to us, hasn't he? He's explained God. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Dear Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus. I pray if any are here who have never put their trust in him as Savior and Lord, that you would draw them to him today, that they would not rest until, first of all, they are right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who know you through Christ, I pray that we would grow in our understanding of the glory of Jesus so that we might be transformed more and more into his image. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to conclude our service.